One Week Season. WS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes. Hilo here bringing you the 12th and final 2022 Game Theory in Best Ball podcast. We are going to jump right into it. My guest for this week is a man that you have seen around the past couple years at OWS, a man who I have countless experiences with in the podcast scene. You know him as the pun master flex himself, Mr. Todd Burroughs, Todd from PA. How are we doing today, man? I am doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great, dude. And I am excited. I wanted to get you on this podcast series I was doing. Obviously, you are one of the major contributors to me getting into best ball to begin with. Um, So kind of this is a a full circle culmination, if you will, for me personally. And I thought it would be a great addition to this podcast series. So excited to have you on, man. Excited to be here. I, I always appreciate it's always better to be asked than not to be asked. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, we took it right. I wanted to save you until the last few weeks or, you know, this ended up being the last week, but um, it kind of came together as I I, as I had planned. So happy that you could make it this week uh, and jam with me. Absolutely. I am happy to be here and uh, let's do this. Yeah. So the basic premise of what we've been exploring through this podcast series is we're trying to look through the different theoretical aspects of best ball and try and push the envelope of the edge and try and stay ahead of the field per se. With that being said, we've, we've covered all kinds of different theoretical, um, and this is highly rooted in, in game theory, obviously, uh, with it being from me, but, um, a lot of what we've done has been this just theoretical exploration of the new, you know, what is going to be prevalent next year? What are people going to be, talking about next year how can we maintain that edge moving forward and a lot of that comes with the the disclaimer that this is all forward thinking stuff this is stuff that has not been proven yet may or may completely optimal but we're trying to establish and maintain that edge one thing that i have taken from your process in talking with you and obviously we've maintained our um, communication. And we've talked about best ball. We've talked about DFS this off season, but one of the big takeaways I took from talking with you is you're trying to take the successes that you've had, um, with your extensive history in best ball, you know, dating all the way back to best ball tens and kind of like a cash game, best ball, if you will, and trying to apply those moving forward, um, to these large field contests. One of the big things that has kind of come from that is how you handle player exposures. Can you talk to me real quick about your general sense of player exposures, you know, how you manage exposures in different rounds and um, how you kind of bring it all together there? Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, you're going to hear a lot from me about all the stuff that we've talked about in DFS together for many years. And the first one is you have to find your edge. I don't think that there is such a thing as an edge, right? Because each person has different skills, experiences, and things of that nature. And so maximizing your edge is always the thing that is most important. So From a DFS perspective, it gets back to, are you a single entry player or are you a optimizer person, right? You know, certain people are going to just be better at one than the other. So for me, when it comes to best ball, I feel that I have a huge edge because pretty much, you know, there's probably 20, 30 people out there who have studied best ball as extensively as I have, understand the basics of the the format as much as I do. So my edge and where I can lean my weight on the field is I don't need to be as fragile or 
because I have other edges, right? My 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 uh, roster construction, the way I understand roster construction, is way different than the average guy who plays best ball, right? Um, my understanding of exposure, um, my my study of of win rates and how they uh, affect advance rates. So all that stuff is my biggest edge. So basically what I've done last year, I had a 30% pass through rate on lineups that I built without a partner, right? The average is 17. I've had similar successes in other years. In fact, the year before uh, I did limited amount because Pennsylvania wasn't open. I did limited amount of, um, of uh, underdog, but I had a 30% advance rate. Where I've gotten into trouble is I haven't gotten to the final week. I've done very well with advance rates. I've done very well with even week 15. Um, So I don't want to give up that advantage, right? If I can consistently get a 25 to 30% advance rate, that's, that's elite, right? That is that that's considered elite. Um, if you can do it year after year, doing it one year, it's very good. Doing it every year or most years is elite. So that's my advantage, and I know we're going to get into a bunch of uh, that in a more microscopic way. But my thing isn't to reinvent the wheel. My thing is to take the advantage I have and then come up with a plan. Uh, to get me to the next level. Yeah. So there's a couple things there that I really liked of what you brought out. And the first is identifying what your edge is and hammering it at, you know, to the maximum extent practical. Um, you know, with me, that's obviously this, this idea of, of forward thinking and apply, apply this premise of game theory to a game that that it has not been done before. Right. You know, we, I've, I've taken what I've been doing in DFS and, and tried to bring that over to best ball with, uh, with you, um, and your successes in advance rate and all that in the previous years. Um, obviously there has, there, there has to be some, I guess, Adjustment Sorry, I make. had to jump off for a second. Uh, I didn't catch that question. That's okay. Uh, I'm still kind of fumbling my way through it, actually. Oh, <laughs> uh, so basically, what I was saying is, is what you brought out, there's two big things there that I want to cover. One is you have to identify what your edge is and hammer that to the maximum extent that you can. Um, that, Like you said, that goes everything to DFS. That goes everything to life, really. You know, We want to identify what we're good at and, and look to gain an edge and focus on what you're good at as opposed to kind of just being mediocre at a lot of things. Um, brought that up. The second part of that is I want to kind of bring it back to you. And with the successes that you've had, uh, in the past with best ball, the extent to which you've gone into researching what is successful, uh, or how to achieve success, how are you tailoring that, um, that I guess game plan moving forward into these large field contests? So the the key thing is right it's fragile it's to be fragile or not to be fragile and you know there's the different ways to get edges so uh for me I tend to stick to more safer um, roster constructions because I don't need that kind of fragility now if the board opens up and I've got an opportunity to, you know, I, I've trained myself in every theory that you can think of, right? How to be fragile, you know, and one of the biggest edges I find is there are a lot of sites that teach people something like zero running back, do zero running back. But then you go through and you look at um, you look at these lineups that people build. And they're just, it's not that zero running back is bad. You know, you can build really good zero running back lineups. But there are, uh, you know, last year, especially after Justin Herzig took down the tournament with a four running back build, and with all the guys talking about zero and, you know, just going nuts on zero, 
Um, basically, what ended up happening is in almost every draft, I could find three or four teams that if they weren't dead, they were way behind the eight ball just in doing fragility wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So when you talk about fragility and being fragile, it's very important to make sure that the people you teach know how to do it right. So what do I mean? For example, zero running back. I see tons of zero running back lineups with only five running backs. Th that's not the right way to do it, right? What you're going what you're going to do is you're going to take, you know, why do you need 10 wide receivers when you took six in the first seven rounds? Right? That that doesn't make sense, right? Because now you've taken something that's fragile and made it precarious. So my, one of my edges is you know, I tend to stick to more established roster constructions, but I build them in ways where I'm still fragile. So uh, Connor uh, Driscoll just did a great article on Rotoviz about this, about how um, if you stack a couple different strategies, you can have a basic roster construction of 2592 or 2583 and still have a 1% outcome of, in other words, you're only competing with 1% of the field. And our good friend Zandemir has talked about this a tremendous amount in DFS, where if you go just go from stacking one guy with a bring back to two guys with a bring back, you go something like from 17% of the field down to like 2% of the field. So, I am fragile. I do have unique builds, but I'm also doing it in a way where each of my position groups has enough weight to be successful. And you can get weight in two different ways. You can get it in volume of players, or you can get it by spending early capital on that position group. Okay. Yeah. I, I like a lot of what you covered there. And I want to kind of throw it back to you and get your thoughts on this idea of fragility at positions other than running back, because I feel like that's kind of just the, where the field is focusing most of its efforts right now is, is around the running back position and how to handle that. And then how that influences the rest of your roster. Well, what about like tight end fragility? We know it's the most variant position yet as you said, the standard is to utilize either two or three tight ends. Like, how are you? How are you handling fragility at, like, say, quarterback and and tight end, the the onesie positions? Well, first of all, every draft is not the same. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, you know, I, I have a lot of tools in my toolbox that I can use to. Um, that I can use, right? So one of the things, and, and it's funny because I noticed it based on, um, we did a bunch of uh, best balls as OWS last year. And mm -hmm. I came in second place and I was in first place right up until the end. And what happened was I noticed that I had Stafford and Brady on that team. Now, normally I wouldn't put two top quarterbacks together. Now, I mean, they're not top. Um, uh, the term that Connor uses and Rotoviz uses is, is window. And the window is the sixth best to like, say the 13th best and taking two in the window is actually a very underutilized um, strategy. Mm -hmm. And I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I do know that it's, it's, it's very, very, um, you know, it's, it's underutilized and I don't like doing it with one of the early guys, because if you spend a fourth or a fifth round pick on a quarterback, I don't want to come back in the ninth round or the eighth round or the, even the 10th round in most lineups. Uh, you know, if someone drops, that's different, but in general, I'm looking to get two quarterbacks in that six to 10th round, Right. And basically, that gives you a couple of big advantages. One, while we act like best ball was invented two years ago, we have about eight years of um, results from best ball tens. And that strategy was one that Mike Beers talked about years ago, drafting two quarterbacks in that 
10 to, you know, in that eight, uh, you know, seven, eight to 15 window. Uh, basically, back in the day, we said if you get two top 15 quarterbacks and you don't take one early, that's that's a winning strategy. But in these tournaments, I feel it gives you another advantage. I did research on quarterback weeks that you had to have. And without boring you with the details, last year, there were only 14 of those weeks and the year before 22. Between the two years, so that's almost 40 different events, only four of them were quarterbacks that were drafted after the 10th round. So what are we looking for? We're looking for that 1% result. And what won everything last year? Joe Burrow uh, having a 38-point week and combining it with a 50-point week from one of his receivers. If you didn't have that, you weren't winning, right? Um, So my strategy basically gives me two quarterbacks each week in the playoffs who can hit that ceiling that the rest of the field is going to struggle to match. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, I saw that study that you did. And so of those like 36 individual, and how did you define uh, like a had to have was it like 35 plus points? It was from 38 points. 38, 38 points. points using FFPC scoring. Um, and, you know, more study should be done. Um, you know, we're, we were knee deep in best ball, but um, I w- I'd be interested to see out of those 38 uh, uh, different uh, 36, how many of them brought a wide receiver along? That was also a must have score because that would really define a must have score, right? Yeah. Where, where, where your stack just has given you a 30 point advantage, a 40 point advantage that is unlikely to be caught up. Um, and then I, I am a big believer, especially on the FFPC, but also on underdog in a top tight end and putting two uh, top quarterbacks, but again, not spending really high on them. Get, you know, like my, my most owned guys are Russ, Dak. Um, I'm mixing Kyler and Hertz. I have a lot of Stafford and Brady. You know, those are the guys who, you know, aren't being drafted as the top three quarterbacks, but legitimately could finish the season as top three. You mix in a top tight end to that build, and you are in that 1% range of outcomes without, well, you could have the most boring 2583 or 2592 in the world. And if you take a top tight end, it's going to be 2592. So in circumstances like that, you know, I'm counting on volume at the wide receiver position, those nine, and stacking them with my two good quarterbacks where it makes sense to get enough for the the wide receiver position to get there too. Um, So um, that is one way to be really unique without ever doing anything – weird at, uh, and being, you know, uh, being fragile, um, with, uh, you know, three quarterback, uh, running backs or four running backs. Um, and just to give you an idea, um, I did, I, I have four running backs in five, nine. So I still have 9% of my underdog with four running backs. Um, I have one, three, six, and six and 16, 22% of my rosters have three quarterbacks. So, um, and I've got 17%, 21%, 23% of my teams have six running backs. Mm-hmm. So I, I do at times change up my builds, but I don't go into any draft feeling like I have to be unique with a build. Yeah. And that's something that we've talked uh, kind of ad nauseum about in this space is, is this idea that the general tendencies of the field is to really have an idea of what their roster is going to look like from a roster construction standpoint, based on like their order in the draft, which is almost like, it's almost like trying to say like, 
I know exactly where I want to take this next shot from on the basketball court. You like the, the game is so fluid and dynamic that we have no, like you, it's hard to, to plan for something like that. You have to be able to understand the basics, understand the theory behind them, understand why that theory is the way it is to be able to deviate from it. Right. So we have well, all this. There's two things, right? One is a JM to win thing. And one is a blender thing. You know, what does JM always say from day one, when I met him 10 years ago now, put as much floor and ceiling into your lineups as you possibly can. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, build uh, in a way. And then what does blender always say? Build good lineups. Yeah. Play who you want. Build good lineups. (laughs) You know, so ultimately, you know, and I, you know, one of the big things I take a lot of heat for on Twitter is I'll mock people who feel the need to go 40, 50% on a guy. You know, that is, I don't think there's anything wrong with it in theory, but people act like you're weak if you don't do it. And really, to me, high ownership on a player is a very blunt instrument, right? And I think for best ball, it's not, I like it more for season long, where once you get in the playoffs in these tournaments, it's a three-week race, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, the the idea of having a lot of one guy in a three-week knockout format, if you've got 60% of a guy in the seventh round or 40% of a guy in the seventh round, even if, let's say, you you get a 20% pass-through and you still got 60% of that guy, it only takes him having one down week in three weeks to pretty much put you out. Right. I'm more trying to build loads of good lineups with good players. And it leads to the most important difference between DFS and you want to talk about edge. To me, the biggest edge that the field doesn't account for that I think I do is the the, the chance of injury. I mean, I wish I had a dollar for every tweet I've seen over the last few years. I had 40% of this dude and he's out for the year. That's not something we worry about in DFS, right? In DFS, you pretty much everyone's going into the week either healthy or pretty close to healthy. Or and if they're and if they're really not healthy, why are you playing them? Right? If it's a guy with a, a, a really bad ankle. You know, why are you playing him in DFS other than a couple lineups, right? You know, you wouldn't give a guy with a bad ankle 60%. But in DFS, I would be more than happy to have 60% ownership on good plays. But in best ball, the difference between whatever, let's say you're in the 12th round and you love player A. You think player A should be a fourth round pick, right? And but most likely the difference between him and other 12th rounders and the field is too efficient for that anyway but but the difference between that guy and the other guys in the 12th round tend to be between 2 and 3 fantasy points a week on a projection basis if a guy gets injured and he's out for the year that could be 12 to 15 points a week that you're giving up so I, I, I'm, I, I'm perfectly happy to have 2x on players in the first two rounds, and I'm perfectly content to be 3x the field anywhere else in the draft. In theory, late round pick, would I go 4x? Probably. It's just that late round picks tend to be late round picks for a reason, and I end up blending them into what I consider good lineups based on stacking and um, other, you know, correlations and things of that nature. So I never get there. I don't mind 40% on a late guy in theory. I just never get there. But 40% on a guy in the 10th uh, round is, you know, you're, you're, you know, if you have an injury, you know, you're crippled. You're, you, you spent six months and you're crippled going in before one play has been run. You're crippled. So I don't think the field accounts for that. And I use the fact that uh, blending and, and, and mixing my exposure while still taking positions, I feel gives me a significant edge on the field as far as best ball theory. 
Yeah. And you best ball theory, like what is that? It's this interesting blend of like, we know that we have to get to the playoffs, which is this season long contest of 14 weeks. And then we know we have to fold in some DFS theory into the end because that's where all the money's at. Um, I dug into uh, a bunch of that kind of through the process of this podcast series and you know, layering in these different theoretical components from both of these games into a new game where it hasn't really been explored fully um, yet. But you talked about the idea that injuries do happen. And yes, in, in best ball, kind of the, the buzz phrase right now going around the industry is draft like you're right, right? You see that all the time. It's draft like you're right and don't worry about the other stuff. Well, the, well, the fact that's that also something we talked about on OWS constantly. Yeah, the fact of the matter to build, is to build each team as if you know, you know, if, if you're paying in DFS nine thousand for somebody, right? You're building as if that guy's going to be successful, right? If you take a first round player, you know, I'm not going to hedge that first round player. Um, but what I might do is I might hedge the guys around him. So, for instance, uh, I might put Naheem Hines on a Christian McCaffrey team. Why? Because if, you know, the choice is between Nahim, uh, is between McCaffrey and Jonathan Taylor. Well, if Taylor goes down, who's going to benefit? DFS theory, Naheem Hines. If I put them both on the same team, I can supercharge being right on taking Christian McCaffrey in that lineup. Yeah, I, uh, that's interesting you bring that up. Last night, I actually was doing some late night drafting on DK, and I drafted a... CMC Josh Allen uh, Pitts start, and I didn't touch another running back until uh, <laughs> Naheem Hines in like the 11th, 12th, something like that round. So um, I completely dig that uh, aspect. I think what I was trying to get at, but before with this, the blending idea of multiple different theoretical concepts is the difference between a single roster imposed onto that single roster and a portfolio management mindset through your entire portfolio of best ball rosters. What I mean by that is we want to draft individual rosters as if every single thing on them goes right, right? But when we start folding in the best ball theoretical concepts of portfolio management and injuries and the variance associated with the NF the game of of the NFL of the National Football League of football there's so much variance that can happen along that path that yes there is a definite edge to be had in shifting your mindset from drafting one roster to portfolio management where you have to include this idea that injuries happen that coaches are going to be fired that schemes are going to change that a team like the 2021 Philadelphia Eagles is going to just drastically change the way that they're going to try and win football games halfway through the year. There's just so much variance that can happen that yes, there is definite merit to not being 40% uh, on a given across a given portfolio. What do people say? What people say, well, it's a matter of risk tolerance and that's true to a point, right? It's your money. If you want to put 40%, you know, 40% on a guy, that's your risk tolerance. But that doesn't mean it's good theory, right? And mm-hmm. and, and it, it's both. So, yes, to a certain extent, it is risk tolerance. I tend not to get above 25%. Do I think it's terrible if you have 30% on a couple guys? No, I don't. That, to me, is risk tolerance. Um, going 40, 45, 50% on a guy, especially early to me is, um, because when it comes to advance rates and I've studied them extensively, the earlier you're drafted, the more you get crushed when you have an injury. Uh, perfect example last year, Calvin Ridley had the lowest advance rate, 4%, right? Average is 17 4%. That means if you had 40% of Calvin Ridley last year, those teams had a 4% chance of advancing. I mean, that to me is beyond risk tolerance. It's reckless. Now, some people will say I'm too conservative. That's fine. But I do feel that it's a blunt instrument 
And that if you really understand how to play best ball, you can be just as aggressive without going, without getting out in front of your skis. Okay. That's uh, very interesting. And I, it brought up a question in my mind that I want to to you. How do you handle exposures on individual players knowing that ADP is a fluid entity in the sense that obviously we know that the efficiency of the market with which is ADP continually gets more accurate and more efficient as we get closer to first kick, because why, why is that? We have more information. We know more about teams, identities. We know more about injuries. We know more about um, depth chart battles, all that stuff that goes into it. So how do you handle um, your exposure rates over that entire four month draft window? Are you okay going over your 25 to 30% threshold early on guys where you feel like the field might not be accepting enough variance on that situation, or are you kind of just flat rate, like trying to keep your exposures throughout the entire draft window? It is a very important question and I'm glad you asked it. So I will give you an example. I was super high on third round Saquon Barkley. I thought Mm -hmm. it was an obvious misprice. I also felt like it wasn't going to last forever. Aaron Jones in the third round, I felt was not as egregious, but also an obvious misprice. So part of why you only get so much of people is because you do get different draft positions, right? If somebody tends to go in the middle of a round and you're on the corner, you, you're going to either have to reach really high for them, which, you know, in general is a no-no. Uh, I'm willing to do it once in a while. Um, uh, again, the later in the draft, the more willing I'm, I am to go up, uh, uh, you know, a little bit. Um, but so I had at, at different points 30, 35% Saquon Barkley, and I trusted that my evaluation of his ADP was correct and that he would end up moving up and then I my my ownership would come down. On the FFPC right now, I you know, and so I was mixing in Aaron Jones as well because I thought he was a misprice. And I was sometimes I just wasn't in the Barkley business, right? I wasn't going to take him in the end of, you know, at the, you know, if I had CMC, well, once in a while I did just to have a few. Um, But in general, if I could get someone in the middle of the third, I'm not taking them at the end of the second, right? Or maybe even the beginning of the third. I could get enough ownership without reaching too much. So on, um, on FFPC, I've got 21% Barkley overall, 29% in the latest tournament, but that's a tournament where you only get 50, 60. I don't, you know, I'm only going to have 60 teams. It's not 150. It's a $125 tournament, so I don't mind going a little higher. But I don't want to drift from the main point, which is in the short term, I'm willing to be over knowing that if I'm right, I'm going to end up with an amount that's within the range of my choosing. Now, underdog, where I have a ton of teams, uh, let me look it up real quick, what I have of him. He's still one of my most owned guys. I have 15.5%, all right? So as he dropped, and you know, I've got almost 400 drafts on the uh, on underdog. So that isn't that answers your question. Yes, I am not going to artificially keep my guys low early. Um, it just it's something that works out over the the long haul. Yeah, I like that. I I would say the short answer for me is I agree. Um, my. <laughs> One of, you know, obviously some of those work out. Um, I was hammering Chase Edmonds. I was hammering Rashad Penny um, early to where I knew I could back off. Um, if Penny's my most owned running back. Yeah, and I'm right Edmonds, there with you. Edmonds, I was a little late to the party um, on underdog. Where am I? I'm up to, I'm up to about 12% on underdog. Wait, where is he? Uh, 10% on underdog. But on FFPC, I really got a nice amount. I'm up to uh, 19%. Yeah. So obviously there, 
you know, going about our strategy this way and trying to leverage the inefficiencies of the market, there's going to be hits, hits, there's going to be misses. I mean, through my first 50 BBMs, this was prior to Rob Gronkowski um, announcing his retirement for the second time, or I guess it was the first time. Um, but I was up to, through those first 50 drafts, I think I had 43% Rob Gronkowski because it was a situation where if he came back, he was grossly mispriced in the 11th round. Um, obviously, that did not work out, but there were other ones that did. And the point there is I'm not afraid to be to try and leverage the fluidity and the inefficiencies of ADP, which is basically built on this sliding scale. And it, it's very closely related to time. And so, if so, but let's let, let can I stop you for a sec? Yes, please. Let, let, let's do the internal math. Like let's help people to make informed decisions, right? So let's, let, let's use your example. What was the percentage of chance that Rob Gronkowski retired? Right. And you have to answer that question. To me, it was a 50, 50 deal, mm -hmm. right? So I don't, I definitely don't want 50% of Gronk because that is the max that I think I'm going to get, right? So then I look at, so, so that's the important question I ask myself. What's the chance that I'm right about this situation? And I use that to help me to temper my enthusiasms, right? Because it's very easy, because I know you and I love you, and you're, you're so determined to find an edge that at times you can get out over your skis, right? So I can too. I can too. So these are tools since I've been playing best ball for a long time that I've instituted to keep myself on the right track. And that question is, what's the chance that I'm right here? Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with a guy like Gronk, who's, you know, already shown, he already retired once for you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, you know, so again, that's not taking a shot at you. But my goal is to give the people who listen to this podcast that because you're an adult, right? You are a smart guy. You're well-researched. You thought that was your edge. You pounded it. There is nothing wrong with that. I stand behind that 100%. But to the guy who is listening to content, getting into um, the you know, and the, they're guys who might not want to lose everything that they, they put in, right? Like a guy like you might say, well, I, I do X, Y, and Z, and this is my fun, and I'm willing to go uh, risky, and if I lose all my money, I'm okay. You know, that is a, an informed decision, and you've got numbers to back up everything you're doing. The guy who listens, they need tools so that they can, you know, th that is one of the ones that I really recommend. Ask yourself, what's the chance that you're right, and what's the chance that you're wrong? You know, and as, if it's an 18th round guy and you say you're 70% right, I'm going to say that you probably are being too enthusiastic, right? Because it, you mentioned the, um, the field and how ADP is um, pretty smart over time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if a guy's in the 18th round, his chance of being successful isn't 70%. It just isn't. Right. Because if it was, he'd be in the 12th round. Yeah. Unless your name is Damian Pierce. I'm just kidding. I had to throw that in there. You know, and I missed that one. <laughs> and, and I missed Cooper Cup last year. So, I, I mean, you know, but that also makes me want to be more balanced in my exposure. I've learned over time. I'm pretty darn good at this, this kind of internal math of what teams are thinking and, and what's likely to be the situation over the long haul. But boy, every year I miss somebody that hurts and it makes you more humble and it makes you want to challenge your biases more. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You, one thing you mentioned earlier was the, Differences in formats that you're playing. You know, you have drafts on underdog. I assume you're doing DK as well. Is that accurate? No, just, okay. I mean, I got 20 grand in fantasy football this year. Underdog um, and FFPC. And, you know, taking on another, I mean, that's probably eight grand more than I'm comfortable with. 
yeah. right? But I, I'm not going to, and I'm going to get some of it back, right? I mean, it's just the nature. And FFPC is a, a much better format for a build, you know, because if you, you, you pay 125 and if you uh, are one of the top two teams, you get 300 bucks. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, even if I, if I do 100 teams there, you know, that's 12.5 and I only get a 15% return. Right. I've, you know, uh, let's say only 15 percent of those teams get through, you know, that's forty five hundred right there. And that doesn't mean that those teams aren't going to advance further and further. Now, if I double that and I get a 30 percent like I did last year, now I've got nine grand back out of the twelve five. And, you know, and I've got 30 entries. And if I get a 20, you know, last year I got 20 percent week 15. You know, now I've got another, um, you know, six times 300, um, you know, so I'm pushing close to being even heading into the final week. Okay. So how do you, how do you change that strategy with the different uh, formats and the different dynamics between underdog and FFPC? Well, I I don't pay as much money on underdog. I, I mean, I, I did one bulldog for 500. I'll max out the 150 at 25. And I, I I love the puppies. I'm addicted to drafting, right? Mm-hmm. You have to know your weaknesses as well as your strengths. I'm addicted to drafting. I love it. You know, I always call best ball the one-night stand of fantasy football. It's all the fun without any of the responsibility, right? <laughs> I like that. You know, and, you know, so some people, like one of my good friends in this, he's like, ah, I can't waste my time on $5. To me... If I do 205 entry teams, you know, I can win 75 grand in one of those puppies. Um, and, you know, and I get to scratch that itch really well for $1,000. And I get to use all my theories, all my, uh, you know, because my my stuff is based on doing volume. Mm-hmm. So for me... Um, you know, but the FFPC, because it is a higher stakes, uh, you know, $125, if they had a similar setup to underdog, I wouldn't play it at all. I just yeah. wouldn't. Because underdog, I mean, you got to realize the numbers here. If you play 150 teams and you have a 30% win rate, which is fabulous, right? You've got 45 teams. If you get uh, the average in week 15 is 10%. If you hit 20%, you double it. You've only got nine teams in week 16. Mm -hmm. Now you've only got a five and a half percent shot, a one of 18 shot with those nine teams of getting to week 17. That is, you know, is, is, you know, I mean, you're talking, I, I forget the exact numbers, but you're well under one per, you, you know, when you max out a tournament on underdog, you're well under 1% chance of getting a team into the finals. Yeah. It's about 0.213%. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, and that is laughable, right? Even if you have an edge and and point two one three. Let's say I'm really good at this, and I can double that. And and in my head, it was close to half of one percent. You know, Todd Burrows. All the studying. I'm putting a thousand dollars. Um, what wait into puppies? Let's say I've got a one and a half chance. Uh, um, ch- you know, a less than one percent chance of even having a sweat. Yeah. Which leads to the next question of what did I do to increase my chances of getting a team into week 17 and making sure that those teams would be ready to go. Uh, And that's why it's very chic to put down correlating because everyone's doing it. But if you build really good lineups, you know, there is definitely an advantage to correlating as long as you're not emptying your pockets to get them. There's a couple things there that are very interesting. The first is the discussion about the lower dollar 
tournaments, the puppy, the DK Millie, you know, the $5 barrier to entry contest. What is so good about those contests is it gives you exposure to additional volume. When we talk about a game, a season long game where our sample size is one, like it's not DFS where we can, we can play short slates. We can play showdowns. We can do things to increase our overall volume, which over time is going to allow edges to be stamped out at a higher rate, right? What's going to allow us to realize our expected value. A game like best ball, we don't have that. So what is the only way that we can influence that? Uh, you know, real, we'll call it the realization of expected value. It's through volume. And so those lower barrier to entry contests give you the path to increase volume um, as opposed to like, like do we like for comparing the DK Millie or the puppy to the FFPC contest, you can get 25 drafts in, in the DK or the puppies compared to one FFPC. So the big difference is though, if you advance in the FFPC, you get 300 bucks, right? So your chance of breaking even on the FFPC is much greater. So Again, I feel I have an edge, so I, I'm going to do 60 of these things, right? Um, that's a lot of money, right? I mean, you know, that's yeah. close to seven grand. Then I've got partners that I'm going to probably do another 10, right? And then I did early best ball with them. But I don't mind paying more if I have a better chance of breaking even. The th you know, but the other really important thing, and I don't follow DK at all, I, but I do know this. I was looking for uh, DFS and the rake on some of these low price contests uh, for DK for DFS are over 16% now. Uh -huh. They just keep creeping up. When you look at the puppy, what I love about the puppy is the rake's only 10.5%, right? So, you know, I'm much more happy to play best ball with a 10.5 rake than DFS. And I'm not saying I'm not going to play DFS. I'm a degenerate. Of course, I'm going to play uh, <laughs> DFS. But I'm saying that, you know, I don't plan on putting as much money this year as I did in the past into, because I think the edge on DK has gotten, you know, with between their pricing being so good and their rate being so high, it's, it's harder to envision a break even. Where on a, you know, even on a puppy, you know, if I put in a thousand, uh, let's say 150 times five, right? 1500 bucks, right? Is that right? No. No. That's 750. Uh, 150 times. Sorry about that. All right. So 750 bucks, right? I put 750 in. If. I, I know that, you know, if I can get my 30 and 20, I'm going to have probably, you know, two thirds of my money back. Where in the FFPC, if I put up a 30 and a 20, I, I'm almost even. Uh -huh. So those, you know, we talk about the inner math. You got to do the math on the contest. That's another thing Zandamir talks about all the time. Yeah, because that that directly influences your expected value, which is the theoretical money that you can expect from a contest given your edge against the field. Another aspect that you brought up that um, was very interesting to me was building differently within the framework of what is mathematically proven to be optimal in these contests, and that's that five eight uh, or sorry two five eight three or two five nine two structure. I did a study for a course that I was writing this year on the Millie Maker winners. And why did I choose the Millie Maker winners? Because it is probably the contest in DFS with the most variance associated with it. There's 400,000 plus entries every week. Uh, well, between 200 and 400,000, depending on the price point. Now with the $5 Millie Maker for week one, there's almost a million freaking entries in that thing, which is crazy to think about. But I chose that for a very particular reason, because that is probably the closest we can get to the amount of variance that is in the contest of best ball as well. And what I found was only once did the optimal roster from last year in the Millimaker 
contain a standard, quote-unquote, standard DFS correlation. And that is a quarterback plus a pass catcher plus one correlated bring back. Only once did they winner, and this is the regular season 18 weeks, only once did the winner include a standard DFS correlation of one quarterback plus a pass catcher and one correlated bring back. So if that's the case, when we look at how we transfer that to the game of best ball, where everybody's talking about week 17 correlation, everybody's talking about stacks, correlated bringbacks, correlated pairings, all this stuff, you know, because we know the money is made, um, which influences our EV, the money, bulk of the money is made in, in week 17, which is a sample size of one. So if that's the case, you would be hard to find rosters that are looking at optimal DFS you know, utilization for those weeks in the correct way. We're seeing all the time rosters leave a best ball draft with a quarterback paired with one pass catcher paired with a correlated bring back or, you know, through the first seven rounds, what is the primary focus? Primary focus is one quarterback paired with one pass catcher paired with a correlated bring back. Well, the numbers say that that just might not be optimal. So how can we leverage that and build within the constraints of optimal roster construction but do it differently well that's a very easy path to that uh to accomplishing that process how have you kind of taken your week 17 and week 16 because i know we both kind of agreed that week 15 is a little bit less important than week 17 16 and 17 how have you kind of and also the the theory behind that is that a lot of broken, t- first of all, it's one in 10 on underdog, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got a one in 10, yeah, 10% chance isn't bad, right? Then you add to that, that fact that a lot of teams that advance are broken by the time they get there, mm-hmm. right? And as you go further into the tournament, teams are less and less broken. So you might be in a, a league with 10 teams, but you know some of them might have zero quarterbacks left. Right, if they did a, t- a two five eight three build, um, so I don't feel the need to tweak up week fifteen because I already feel like I have a good chance of advancing. I I what I do like to correlate because we've seen it before, and I do like mini correlations. Uh, a mini correlation would be some a stack with a, a a game stack without the quarterback. I do like it. But I don't, it's a matter of how much I'm willing to give up to do it. So, because I'm a blender of exposure, it's very rare that I have, you know, I'm not going to, you know, what, so, so what I do is I use the spike week uh, overlay and it easily shows me my correlations and my stacks when I'm on the clock. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is look down for the blue for the stack and then I'm going to look down for the green for the correlations without the quarterback. And then I look at my cue because I always set my cue from the beginning of the pick, everyone I would consider taking in the next pick. And I say to myself, is there someone I shouldn't chase? You know, is there someone good enough that I shouldn't chase them, right? That I shouldn't chase a correlation here. And if there is, well, then I take the better player, right? If but a lot of times I'm looking at like the ninth or 10th guy um, in the um, ADP. And the, you know, a lot of times, especially past round 10, those eight or nine guys ahead of them, I, I, ha- I have them about even, right? So why not take the correlation and hope that in that week 16, you know, Corey Davis and, um, I forget who they, I think they have Seattle week 16. Um, but, but you get my point uh, or week 17, you know, I might have, if I have uh, Tyler Boyd, I mean, if I ha- if I've taken Devin Singletary, I might add Tyler Boyd. I'm not going to pass on someone I have well ahead of Tyler Boyd, but there's a good chance that those two guys are the guys who get there from that game. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, it's not, Yes or no, it's yes, I like correlating, but I like it better when I can, um, you know, uh, but I'm not going to, to, to drop a tear to do it. 
Yeah, that's uh, also in that same study, and this kind of goes ties in perfectly to kind of what you're talking about. The four of the 18 millimaker winners from 2021 included or consisted of a quarterback plus the running back from the same team plus a pass catcher. You well, think about and, and and the numbers that the guys who study, everyone wants that Jamar Chase with Joe Burrow, but there's a very good chance that you know it could be Tyler Boyd right mm-hmm. we, we, you know we we had last year we had a number one receiver go with his quarterback mm-hmm. um but i am you know like uh if i take that da- i'm willing to take Dak as a quarterback and add you know earlier on w- before he got hurt james washington i'm willing to add you know i'm willing to have tony pollard and then Dak and then uh a late uh wide receiver, what I'm not willing to do, which you will almost never see me do, I'll do it occasionally, is Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Joe Burrow. Mm-hmm. Because really, I want, you know, I want some T. Higgins teams with Joe Burrow. I want some Jam- the chance of them both going off with have to have scores. And then you consider when they're being drafted. That to me is a negative EV. Yeah, but we have to we have to at the same time realize that there is a difference between optimal and there's a difference between or I guess there's a difference between optimal and what we need to win. Also, you know, on the same study of if we want to relate it to DFS here, the same study of millimakers, has there ever been an optimal ship the millimaker? No. Like that's that's insane. We've had what 8 9 years of DFS play and the millimaker in existence and you know 200 to 400,000 entries in each week and there's never been an optimal roster come out of that m- contest so we don't necessarily need optimal because why we're playing against other human beings that are inherently flawed that it make mistakes that all this yada 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 so if we don't necessarily need optimal now we start bringing in this idea of like these overstacks because what does that do that basically takes the things that have to go right on a roster down from this hodgepodge of different dart throws to now one team, which is, or one game, which is a one in 32 chance or a one in 16 chance. Right. So that's why these ideas of like the overstacks and um, that's why they, they gain merit because we're, we're lowering the things that need to go right in order to, to capture one of those outlier performances. The problem is, that that is kind of the main focus of the field. So it's this very delicate balance of like utilization of those processes versus the field. Because um, it, a good example is is what does what does Blender teach? You know, we we you mentioned him earlier. What does Blender teach? Well, there is a high reliance on on ownership or in best ball field tendencies that is going to influence our game plan development because when we're right, we want to win more money when we are right. So it's this very delicate dance. A lot of interesting theoretical concepts go into that. Um, and the, the real answer is we don't know. We have no idea what the path to first place is right now. All we know is what we're doing, what the field is doing, and how we can do things theoretically different. Yeah, and, and I'm fine with all that. As long as you're making good lineups. Yep. Like if someone shows me a three running back build. Oh, and, dagger and to one, the heart. <laughs> and one of them is in the 16th round. Okay. I'm going to say that's a bad lineup. All right. right? We're okay. <laughs> you, you've taken a fragile build and you've just gone over the cliff with it. Right. So it's not an excuse to make that. That's all true. It's just not an excuse to make bad lineups. completely concur. I did some three running backs. You know me. I have some three running back rosters. Um, A lot of it was during that time frame. Really? You do? (laughs) What? That's weird. A lot of it was during that time frame when Alvin Kamara was going in the third, when Saquon Barkley was going in the third, when you could build these rosters where it was like CMC, Saquon Barkley, and Alvin Kamara. And that was like, I was like, okay, I'm done. (laughs) Like, If those guys are going to perform as I expect they do, then I don't need any more running backs. But yes, there is definite um, 
All well, the stuff and, we're talking and, about. And you, you bring up a point like Alvin Kamara. You know, when you were doing it, there was still a lot of inherent risk that he would, you know, miss six games. That's mm-hmm. not an ideal guy for me to do a three or four running back build. Would I do it? Yeah. I, I mean, a four, not a three, but I would do a four, right? Because in that lineup, you know, it's one of 150. Um, I'm counting on the fact that he is going to um, be fine. But but um, in general, again, I'm not looking to build – in other words, that team, the risk at running back is the four running backs, right? I'm not looking to build in a bunch of risky guys. That, that being said, I had a couple with Ronald Jones as my boy. Yeah, and that just, that just goes down to you have to – know your style of play you have to know what your goals are and then you tailor your your game plan development from there you can't you can't skip one of those steps and arrive at this this magical game plan or this theoretical concepts that you're gonna crush best ball with know what your goal is and that's why like it's very it's good for listeners to hear the other side of that we haven't talked a lot about ffpc and um, the different dynamics of that contest over there with respect to, you know, the money you get for making the second round compared to these other contests, because that is important to understand. We have kind of from, we've kind of approached this series of podcasts through the lens of like what I'm doing and what I'm doing is basically it's first place or bust (laughs) in a lot of these contests because the payout in advancing to the second round is not is almost laughable the payout to advancing to the third round is not going to get you much money so it is these top heavy payout contests you have to adapt a different mindset than a contest like ffpc and yeah, i like that and, and just because a bad lineup wins doesn't mean you should make bad lineups right yeah like anything can happen when 450, but if you look at Liam's lineup that won, I mean, it was not a bad lineup at all. No. Uh, an underdog. I mean, he had Penny, he had Singletary, I think. Um, Penny you know, correlated so, with, uh, with Amon Ross St. Brown. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, he just had the nuts, um, but it was not a bad lineup. So that's kind of what I'm emulating. Um, you know, uh, DK, because it's a one week contest, you're going to get more variance, right? And, and, and the element of the salaries is, a, is different than best ball. Yes, there is something similar with ADP, but it, it, we have to acknowledge it's different. Um, but, you know, it is the difference is if that DK lineup needed to be good the week before to, 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 to earn the right to get in there and, and, and win that week, I bet you would see a lot less variance in the winners. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, uh, just don't, because you don't win a lot by advancing, don't poo poo the need to advance because you need to have a plan to advance. And I know you get this. You need to have a plan to advance and you need to have a plan. Look at each team and say, how's this team getting out of week 16? And once it gets to week 17, how am I going to win? I mean, it could be as I've got a few teams, uh, both in FFPC and uh, underdog And uh, I think I'm the only one on, I I don't know on underdog, but I'm definitely the only one on FFPC so far that has uh, um, the tight end of uh, Baltimore likely. And then in the 20th round, see, and again, 20 rounds, you can be a little weird in that 19th and 20th round um, because you're not as dependent on those guys to help you advance. But I've got, um, what's uh, Huntley? with likely mm-hmm. right so to me it makes sense to have out of 60 lineups two with Huntley and likely because if Andrews is hurt and and uh, Lamar is hurt well we've seen Huntley focus on the tight end this kid likely is supposed you know I don't mind taking some w- things like that but you don't want every team to be built with that as your this is how my team's going to get home 
Um, you want to tell a story with correlations. For me, it's a lot of teams have those two quarterbacks in the window with an elite tight end. An elite, you know, one of the reasons we're not hearing more about elite tight ends is because a couple of the big tight ends went off the same week during the playoffs last year. If it was just one of those guys who put up a 40-burger, we'd be hearing a lot more. But because I, I, I forget which one had 40 and which one had 35, but each of those weeks you had two or three of those top guys hit really high scores. But the chances, that was last year. What would have happened if Kelsey put up 45 and the next nearest tight end was 20? Yeah. So, you know, so I, I, that's, that's how I tell my stories. I love it, man. I think that's a good spot for us to end this. But before we go, I want to first say thank you to you for joining me on this last podcast of the 2020 best ball season. I want to say thank you to the listeners for joining us on this 12 week adventure through the theoretical concepts behind best ball. And then I want to let you, uh, Take us out and basically um, let us let the listeners know where they can find you. Let the listeners know what you're doing uh, this year and how to find some of your work. Yeah, I, I made the decision to leave OWS after the last uh, at the end of last year. Um, I'll miss you guys. I will still be in chat once in a while on uh, Discord. Uh, I'm, I'm, I did take work with Sharp Football Analysis. I'll be doing a weekly waiver podcast. Uh, that could lead into something with best ball next year. Um, but if it doesn't, you know, I've been just focusing a lot more on being a player. And I'm really hoping that all the work I put in this year, that I'll at least get us. Well, last year on FFPC, I got to the final 12, but I came in 10th. There was 100 grand up top. Um, anyway, that's the end of it. And I will talk to you later. Sounds good, man. And your Twitter handle is Todd from PA. Is that accurate? Yes. No, uh, at Best Ball NFL. Oh, that's right. It just changed. At Best Ball NFL. So find Todd on Twitter at Best Ball NFL. And OWS fam, it has been a pleasure. We will see you in them Best Ball streets. And if you haven't noticed yet, we're starting to crank out the DFS stuff. So head on over to oneweekseason.com and take a peek at some of my new courses that are out and getting ready for the transition to the best ball, or sorry, from the best ball to the DFS year. With that, I am Hilo. You know where to find me. We are out. See ya.